dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing another webinar I attended. This one's sponsored by the Rhone Rangers, and it discussed North Coast region of California. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and let me know if you've tried any of these wines. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know that many ask for Patreon. We do not plan on doing this, but we do ask for your support by leaving a review. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but honestly means so much to the show. Hope you have a great week. Slancha. Blush. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Sommelier service, champagne and Cotteron specialist, and a WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Give me the red, red wine. Give me the blush. Our focus this uh, month is on the North Coast. So the North Coast uh, is a grouping of about six different counties. Um, people are obviously most familiar with Napa and Sonoma, uh, but there's Mendocino and there's Lake and there's Solano. Uh, counties and Marin County as well. So the wines we're going to be uh, talking about today encompassing all those areas. And the North Coast is certainly an important part of the Rhone Rangers, uh, some of the earliest plantings, probably the earliest plantings of Rhone varieties in California were planted in that region. Uh, It's an area that's not as well known for Rhone varieties because other varieties have kind of uh, overtaken in terms of popularity, but there certainly are some fantastic Rhones grown throughout that region. So we're excited to share some of those with you. Um, Stacey Briscoe is our moderator for today. Uh, I've known Stacey for longer than I care to admit. Um, Stacey is the senior editor of the Wine Enthusiast magazine. Uh, She joined the team in 2022 after freelance writing for the publication for many years. Uh, Previous to that, she held positions as the managing editor for Wine Industry Network, assistant editor of Wine Business Monthly, staff writer of Wines and Vines. Uh, And then she's also done a whole bunch of freelance writing um, and just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. She has moderated the panel at our Rhone Ranger experience in Paso as well in the past. So uh, without further ado, Stacey, I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, Welcome. Thank you very much. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I I have a soft spot for the Rhone Rangers. It was my first industry event I ever went to back when I was getting paid via tickets, industry events. It's like, go to an event and write a piece and we'll give you free tickets. To, and it was the first one I ever went to. And I met so many, so many people there um, that I still am connected to today. So I, it's my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Like Larry said, you know, there's a lot of, um, and that was a really good segue actually um, into how I want to start a lot of historic vineyards out here that are planted to Rome varieties. Um, and I know some folks are drinking along with us, hopefully (laughs) a lot of folks are drinking along with us. Um, it's close enough to five o'clock it's four. Um, and so, uh, I, I want to go through, uh, winery by winery and have first, um, uh, to talk about kind of your sense of place, like where, where are these grapes that you, you picked and, and turned the white, like what, what, what is that sense of place? What is the history there? Um, what is the 
environmental influence um, before we get into the, the actual wine. Um, and so I do want to start with the Grenachista, uh, Casey, if you don't mind, because um, I saw that you source these grapes from Contra Costa and don't nobody quote me, but I think some of the oldest California vines are grown in Contra Costa, but I'll let, I'll let Casey talk about that. <laughs> um, I do get a little fruit from Contra Costa County. This is not the wine that we're you're tasting oh, okay. does not have any of that in there, but um, oh. I'm actually from um, Contra Costa County originally. So uh, when I was growing up by a little town called San Ramon, which is no longer a little town anymore, um, you know, we would drive to go like to the U-Pick uh, orchards out in Brentwood and Antioch and and there's where all those old vines are on the sand where they miraculously escaped Phylloxera because they're on that sandy soil um, and yeah there's there's some beautiful Movedra and, and Grenache and in fact Klein you know grows plenty of it over there um, but uh, being a northern California native um, you know I just think it's such a neat spot it's not very pretty, but uh, you know they grow some great grapes there. Um, but uh, you know, I, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Rhone varietals too. Uh, I started working in the wine industry down in the Central Coast. Um, went down to San Luis Obispo to San Luis Obispo to go to college, um, and you know Pinot was king, and it obviously still is. But uh, uh, one tasting, I was having someone brought a barrel sample of. I think it might've been the first crop off of Michael Larner's vineyard in Ballard Canyon of some Grenache. And I was just like, what is this? Like, this is what I've been looking for. Um, and it just stuck with me. So, you know, a couple of years later, I will someday if I ever have a label, I'm going to make single vineyard Grenaches like they do Pinot Noir and really showcase the grape and it's its site. And um, uh, this is actually my 10th year with the Grenacheista that we, we started in 2013 and, we went from one vineyard to, I mean, I can't even count anymore. We're nine, 10, 10 vineyards and like 16 different SKUs, all Grenache Noir or Grenache Blanc based. And we actually planted a little Grenache Brie that'll be coming online next year. So we'll, we'll have all three of those covered. Where's the Grenache Brie from? Because I've not, I've not seen a lot of that. And there's not a lot of it. Um, there's pretty much three vineyards. William has a little bit, and that's where we got the budwood for it. Um, there's a little bit up in McDowell Valley at the Gibson Ranch that, you know, is 108-year-old vines. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe there's two sites in, there's one in San Luis Obispo and one in San Barbara County. And, and as far as I know, that's it. Um, so we got some budwood from from William last year. Uh, um, there's a little bit of fruit on the, on the vineyard this year, but it's not enough to do anything with. And then next year, we're, we're going to make a, a fun white wine out of it so in terms of the, you said you have like eight or nine different skews of grenache in terms of the one that we have in front of us um what makes this one stand out i assume each one is going to be different if you have that many yeah well you know i make some weird stuff so i, I would say that are probably like 16 skews because we do, right. uh, I do two pet gnats some uh paquettes uh, you know i think there's seven different vineyard designates so uh, if anybody wants a study in grenache <laughs> I don't, or you know, it's really fun to like put them all next to each other and just see that how different um, each site is or the clone selections and knowing that the same dude's making it in the same way. I don't really uh, change my style for each vineyard because um, it's really the way I make wines. It's 100 percent whole cluster and native ferment. So it's it's really site driven and clone driven. And it, it's pretty neat to taste like the same vintage 
with nine different, you know, single vineyard designate Grenache Noirs and be like, holy cow, these really are different wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what it, assuming, you know, you've got these 16 and I know you said they're basically the same wine. Why don't you walk us through your winemaking process for this one um, and maybe tell us how this, this stands out in your portfolio. This is uh, the 2021 North Coast, um, and in 2022, I, I've always kind of had this thought as like, well, you know, we're making all these single, single vineyard designate, what would they taste like if I made one wine out of them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I play with that in the cellar and take samples and, and taste it, and like, that's great, but it's not really what we're, what I'm doing. It just doesn't make sense in my lineup. Well, in 2021, we finally got to the point where I had enough wine um, a couple barrels of this and a couple barrels of that to to blend together. And, and that's what this is. This is the North Coast. So it's um, it's pretty much one barrel of each of the vineyard designates blended together um, and bottled that way. Uh, and it really, it's really the sum of all its parts. It's really interesting wine, um, varietal correct, in my opinion, and just showcasing Grenache in general rather than like, all right, this is Clone 362 from, you know, Rocky Hillside. This is, mm-hmm. um, it was really just more of an experiment, which is my favorite thing to do. Well, to me, anyways, it is very like for anybody that loves Grenache, um, it's got that ripe, bright cherry pop. Um, and so you do, um, you said you do whole cluster. What else kind of goes into your winemaking process? That's pretty much it. I mean, I, I take the grapes and I dump them in a tank and I do a look, do some foot trotting on them. And then it's uh, one pump over a day until the juice is dry uh, mm-hmm. and then I squeeze it um, and it's usually comes out at seven to eight bricks. So it still has to ferment a little ways. I leave it in tank for a couple extra days and then put it in the 500 liter uh, punchins. Um, and in the last few years, I've been buying some new ones. Originally it was all neutral, but I've uh, kind of evolved into, I have to back up a little bit. I now make enough wine where I can use some new oak and not be like overpowering. Um, so I, I do buy a few new punch-ins every year. Um, and then they sit in for two years and I bottle them on fine and unfiltered. So it's, it's really minimalist winemaking. Um, I try my hardest not to abstract anything out of it. You know, it's not always, doesn't always go the way I want it to. Um, so I'm, I'm not adverse to adding some yeast nutrient during fermentation. Um, I do believe in sulfur because I've been burned by trying not to use sulfur, um, but I keep it, you know, at a minimum just to keep it stable. And I really just try to showcase, you know, what comes off of that vineyard, um, with as little of my manipulation as possible. Um, mm-hmm. and that's really been an evolution because when I first started this project, I, I think every winemaker probably does this, but it's like tinker and touch and, and dough yeah. over, over lots. And, and the more I've done this, the more I'm like, just let it be. And, you know, in, in my opinion, it makes better wines. Um, I find wines that are kind of tinkered with kind of clunky. So I, I have to ask, cause I always ask this question, what's your favorite food pairing with this wine? Well, you know, my, my wife's actually a cheesemonger. So um, it's, it's cheese. <laughs> Any cheese or specific cheese? Pretty much. Uh, she's been buying lately. Um, she's the Northern California uh, cheese buyer for whole food. So um, she gets all the good stuff. So there's a, blue cheese that comes from Rogue River Creamery, but they only make it on the winter solstice and it's wrapped in uh, pear leaves and an organic pear liqueur. 
Um, and it is the best. And so she, I mean, and it, it's crazy expensive too. It's like 46 bucks a pound or something, but our cheese drawer right now is filled up with that. So that's what I've been munching on with, with oh all God. the dishes. All right. I'm getting her information offline. <laughs> <laughs> um, if William is online, I see his box. Will, are you with us? Oh, you are with us. Hey, you're still on mute though. Sorry, I'm running around like a crazy person for my final pick tomorrow of my vineyard. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I can imagine that a lot of you are kind of here in between things. So thank you guys for for being here in the first place. Um, and so, Will, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have um, presented us? We've got a old vine Carignan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to bring my vineyard to Grenache, but uh, Casey beat me to it, so we didn't do that. <laughs> And Grenache Gris, we don't have any right now, and it's not it's not considered in the in the family because it's not officially recognized. So, um, when the lineup and based on uh, we just released a bunch of new wines, I'm super stoked about the 2020 Carignan. Uh, it's uh, we've been seeing 75 year old vines for five years, so it's about 80 years old now. It's the Trimble Vineyard up in Hopland. Um, like most of our vineyards, we don't buy on tonnage contracts; we lease sections of vineyards, which has its ups and downs in certain years. But uh, so I share half of this with Alex from Porter Creek. We actually make it into four different expressions of wine, two cans sparkling, a carbonic, and then uh, this uh, just regular Carignan. Um, Grenache Gris is a mutation of Grenache Noir. It's just not recognized in their own Rangers family as a variety because there's not enough of it around. I, I, I could have poured it anyway. Um, I didn't have any. Uh, I fell in love with Carignan. I started making this, I think, in 2012 or 13. Uh, a guy who no longer makes it had made some, and I was really impressed by the lightness of it. I mean, Carignan traditionally is a big, dark, brooding, tannic, stain your purple, teeth purple high alcohol, which are wines I, we don't care for. Uh, we make very light style wines. Um, this one's only 11.8, according to your tech sheet. So. Yep, 11.8%. Uh, we pick it early, even though this is in Hopland, Mendocino, it's in a kind of rather cool section, so it doesn't get very hot mm -hmm. uh, or ripe. Typically, it's uh, you can't get it over 22 bricks, if you don't, even if you try, which we don't care to. Uh, we do two picks first earlier for Carignan. Um, kind of like Casey, I, uh, um, we are definitely people that are, uh, uh, we label ourselves as part of the natural wine movement. We do native yeast fermentations for 14 vintages. We do all neutral barrel. Um, some punchins, not for this one. We ferment no tanks, three quarter ton small tea bins. I think that's part of the way we make this Carignan in a lighter style. I kind of call it my ballerina and cowboy boots, if that's not offensive to anybody. Um, it has the structure and depth of Carignan, but a, but a lighter, almost kind of crew Beaujolais-ish kind of, kind of texture. It's crunchy, mm -hmm. juicy. It's also the wine that's our most universal. When somebody makes a mistake coming to our tasting room looking for a big red, um, besides saying, why the fuck are you here? Sorry, I shouldn't know F-bombs. Why are you here? <laughs> There's 300 wineries and 30-mile radius that have big reds. Uh, it's usually the one that punches across all categories, just because if you are looking for a bigger red, it will fool you. Uh, if you appreciate lighter, zippier, Loire, Loire reds or, or other similar areas, you kind of get more of that characteristic. Um, we do not always do 100% whole cluster. Uh, one of the ways I've learned over the years um, in doing whole cluster, which I think is a technique not understood by a lot of traditional winemakers um, and got a lot of flack when I first started making Carignan whole cluster that it was going to be too tannic. 
If anything, I find it's the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't always do whole cluster as we monitor grape chemistry, uh, not to go too far into the weeds, but whole cluster fermentations does increase the pH of the wine, which then makes it uh, need more sulfur to be microbially stable. Uh, I've witnessed over two droughts that as grapevines get more stressed from, from lack of water, and this vineyard is dry farmed, that the mallocs tend to go up. And so if you pick at 3, 4 pH, have a high malloc shift and stem inclusion, you can end up at pretty high. So I'd make a decision on stem inclusion also based somewhat on grape chemistry. Kind of like Casey, I've learned the hard way over years being a no addition winemaker other than sulfur to not plant landmines for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and one of those is to just to monitor the, the grape chemistry before we make decisions like that. No, that's, I mean, that makes sense. It's super smart. And I know we have both consumers and industry folk in here. So I'm sure a lot of other winemakers are taking notes. <laughs> and, and, you know, you could ask six of us the same question. You'll get eight different answers. That's the way winemaking and I'm learning grape going goes. And we all think we're absolutely right. So my mm-hmm. philosophy does not mean that somebody else's is wrong and vice versa. It's just, I, I stick to what's tried and true after 14 years. Um, and my philosophy is if it's not broken, don't fix it. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting too, because the the process of whole cluster too is what gives it that kind of bright cherry freshness, kind of similar to like a Beaujolais or like you said, like a like a Loire red. Um and I forgot to mention that both yours and Casey's are the ones that I left in my cellar because I actually enjoy, I've actually had both of your wines before. I actually enjoy, these are what I would call chillable reds. I mean, you can have them at room temperature and they'd be totally fine, but I'm one of those people, if I have a chillable red, I'm totally going to chill it. Um, So for folks out there that are into that, um, I think that's a kind of a fun thing that both of your wines are capable of doing. Um, and in terms of the tan, like like you mentioned, the tannins are there; they're present. It's enough to give it structure, but it's not taking away from any of the fruit that you want to bring to the forefront. We also call it our Netflix binge watching wine, which uh, which is, which sometimes people are like. What does that mean? Um, it's a it's a bottle of wine that we uh, will enjoy when we're binge watching something, and sometimes towards the end of the night, you know. I want something that has a little more weight and heft, but I don't necessarily want the alcohol being my second bottle or third, depending on how long we've been binge watching. <laughs> so it's a great kind of fireside um, uh, wine. Regarding cellaring, when would Carignan reach its peak? Well, every producer would be different. Every vintage would be different. We typically need one to two years bottle aging on ours. Uh, we have a kind of a core philosophy. We do not release wines in any schedule or even vintage order. Uh, although the Carignan has been pretty significant. I find that it bottle ages fairly well. We've tasted back through through 13s most recently, but I would say generally two to four years of aging uh, of proper cellar temperature. We also just don't release wines until they're ready to drink. So when a customer buys a wine, uh, I mean, our core market is generally urban people um, and a lot of millennials. Or people living in New York and San Francisco and L.A. don't have 300 bottle cellars to, to stave stuff. So we we try and bottle age them as long as we can until we feel they're they're drinkable. But if you have a cellar and can put them away, they certainly will. This wine will reward a few years of that. Good questions. I see. Yeah, I see a few questions that actually I'm going to save for the end because I want to bring it up to the whole group after everybody's had a chance to talk. Um, so. Thank you, Will. I will also say it's perfect for Mario Karting. So for those of you that prefer <laughs> to binge your video games over your Netflix, Mario Kart with your best friend and a bottle of this. Um, cool. cool thank you. <laughs> 
Um, let's see. Let's go on to, I have them in my very special order. Oh, we're going to talk to Tom now at, at Klein. And uh, I apologize. This is the one that's from Contra Costa yeah. County. Yeah. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell us, I, I know we got a little bit of a sneak preview from Casey, um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the that area um, and the vines that you, you work with there? Yes. Yeah, so I'm Tom Gindle of the Winemaker for Client Sellers. Uh, we, Fred Klein, who started Klein Sellers, was an original Rhone Ranger and started making wine all the way back in 1982 um, in Contra Costa. So um, the I was out there on Tuesday um, with another wine writer um, visiting the vines. The oldest vines that we were visiting were planted in 1906. So they, uh, this comes from some of those vines, 1906, um, the Mavidra planted, actually 1920 and 1906 is when those vines were planted. Beautiful old head-trained vines in really, really sandy soils. So Italian immigrants came from Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and just started sticking vines straight in the ground in Contra Costa in this beautiful sandy soil. Um, you know, went through phylloxera because of the sand. Phylloxera being a louse can't actually cl uh, climb over the sand granules from granule to granule, and that's why sand is almost a natural repellent for phylloxera. So you do find some still own-rooted vines out in super sandy soils um, throughout the country, throughout the world. And then they survived. It's interesting that these varieties survived because Mavidra is quite a large buried variety. Carignan's an especially large buried variety. So to survive through prohibition, um, they could sell them as table grapes um, and still make money off them. And so that's why they survived. Um, nowadays, the major impact is the urban sprawl. So the vineyards are really, really fascinating because you're driving through basically suburbia and all of a sudden there's five acres of vineyard and then down the road there's another 10 then 20 um we're farming around about 400 acres out there um so we definitely consider ourselves stewards of these beautiful old vines that we've been lucky enough to have and uh, so we have grenache we have um carignan and mavedra and also um some zinfandel that was planted quite early as well uh, 1925 is when the zinfandel was planted um, so just these beautiful old vines. Um, not all of them are that old. Definitely it's more pockets of 1906 and 1920s and stuff like that. Um, but there's a lot more plantings going on later on. Um, yeah, but beautiful, beautiful, beautiful old vines, um, consistently yielding two and a half to three tons an acre. Um, we don't do too much. It's all dry farmed. Um, it's right on the Delta. We have a lot of influence from the Bay Area. The wind comes through through Central, uh, through Central Contra Costa, heading on its way to the Central Valley as it heats up. So the wind picks up at about 11, 11 a.m. But I mean, during harvest time, harvest is normally 10th of August is when we start and goes all the way through to mid-September, maybe late September. Um, this year, we've got our last pick tomorrow. So to give you an idea of how late this year is, it's kind of crazy. Um, we're picking the last of the Carignan and some Alicante Boucher. Um, so yeah, so that's fantastic. Um, as far as the wine goes, you know, we've at Klein, we are a Rhone-based winery. We're known for Zinfandel, um, Rhone varieties. We're pivoting at the moment to make more Pinot and Chardonnay and Cab and Sap Blanc. But I just counted, we make around about a dozen different Rhone wines. Um, Mavidra is one of our stars. We'd make Mavidra four different ways. We do a Mavidra Rosé. Um, we have this Mavidra here, which is our ancient vines, um, which is our biggest production Mavidra. We make about 5,000 cases a year of this. Um, and it's definitely a bold kind of big wine. It's not your light or elegant, unfortunately. It's definitely kind of a packed full of packed full of flavor, ripe plum characters. Um, so we make about 5,000 cases of that. That's a blend of vineyards. The 1920 vineyard that I mentioned, Bridgehead, is our main vineyard. And then we augment it with a little bit from Alan Lucchese, our vineyard manager's home ranch, which he's got beautiful vines, but they're only about 50 or 60 years old. 
Uh, then <laughs> we make a single vineyard mavidra as well, um, called our small berry. And then we also do a late harvest um, mavidra from out there. It's kind of crazy because it's so hot and so dry out there. I mean, we stop spraying the, in the vineyards there in May, so no more sprays or anything like that going on. Um, we only use sulfur dust as well. It's um, very hands-off as far as spray. The disease pressure is extremely low. And uh, we managed to let, basically, it's kind of like a reverse Repasso version because we don't need to pick them. They basically turn into raisins on the vine. And mm. then we can pick them and treat them like a red wine as raisins. So basically, pump overs and extraction like, as a red wine. We're picking that at like 30, 30 bricks plus is the idea. Um, yeah. So, you know, it normally gets to 15% alcohol. It's kind of portish because you do get some VA in there, but uh, it's got, it's amazing. So um, Mavidra is a huge love of ours. Um, we make it four different ways and it's really fun to actually do the, do the horizontal version of all our different styles of Mavidra. But then also we obviously do Syrah, we do a Carignan, um, we do Grenache a couple of different ways as well. Um, yeah, we've got lots of different grapes um, and we've got a lot of Rhone varieties here in Sonoma as well. Um, we were one of the earlier ones to be planting Syrah and Carneros. Um, people told Freddie he was crazy in 1991 when he planted a hillside to Syrah, and uh, 98 and 99 he started winning medals and things like that for it. So um, no, it's just a huge amount of heritage and passion for the Rome varietals out here. I want to ask you a bit of a cheeky question because I know somebody somewhere is going to be asking this, if not in the chat, like in their head. Um, you made that comment about the vines only only being 50 or 60 years old. So. <laughs> um it's a cheeky it's a cheeky comment cuz that because I have the like uh the pleasure and the honor to work with such old vines. Exactly. <laughs> so I just want to hear maybe your soundbite of the answer to the question do old vines make better wines oh i've got a cheeky answer for that one as well um so <laughs> vines are like people right i kind of i try to equate them you know we were like equating human qualities to grapevines and other all the things you know uh it's a personification yeah it's personification and um, grapevines are like people right so when they're babies they're useless they don't produce anything um and then as their kids they have lots of energy but what they produce isn't very good and then as they had teenagers, they start producing, they're producing a lot, lot. And like, you can question whether that's good or not. You know, you have to really work hard to get good stuff out of them. But as they get older, they produce less and less, but what they produce is fantastic. And so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the idea and philosophy we have on old vines. Um, and they do it more consistently as well. We don't get the big ups and downs on quality, on quantity. Um, they're pretty consistent. I mean, they've been there for 100 years and um, basically just know what's going on. We don't overcrop them. You can't overcrop them. They don't want to throw it. Canopies are just right. Um, you know, eight spurs per vine, 16 shoots per vine. Um, you know, that's about 24 clusters per vine, give or take. So, yeah, no, it's, um, it's really beautiful fruit out there. And we're really, really lucky to work with it. And now, a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. Just one more quick follow-up and then I'll move on. But because you equate them to people and we know people, you know, as we get 
if, if, if one of us was to live to about a hundred, I think it's fair to say that we would need some assistance. Um, are, is there any specific challenges that you have working with vines that old where you have to maybe give them a little bit of elderly care? Well, I, how would we put it this way? Not all of them are still alive. Um, uh, you know, so you replant as you go, if you know what I mean. So like, you know, um, I would say like about two thirds of the field is the original, but we've been replanting it for 50 years. So, you know, you've got your oldest vines, which are massive things. They're absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then some of the younger ones, and then obviously the the medium ones that were replanted a long time ago when we took ownership of them back in about 1982 is when we, uh, Fred Klein took ownership of them. And um, But his grandfather was farming them in front of him. That's how he actually learned winemaking, by going out and with his grandfather farming these vineyards and making wine during his school holidays when he was a teenager. All right. I will. I, I, like I said, I, I promise everybody's going to get to talk. Um, and I want to move on to Michelle from Minor. And you have your Syrah next. Yes. So um, today I'm, we're uh, looking at our 2020 Syrah from Napa Valley. So this is 100% from the Fortunati Vineyard in Oak Knoll. There it is. I realize I have them behind me where nobody can actually see yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you remember, 2020 was a difficult year in uh, many ways. So we had a fire, the glass fire in Napa Valley that I think started on September 23rd that year. Um, these grapes were picked on October so the fire had been like going on for a little while. Um, we were definitely concerned about smoke taint, but being in Oak Knoll closer to the bay, I think we got very lucky that a lot of the smoke from that fire was really moving directly west, not south. Um, so we were definitely very concerned about it and kind of didn't know like what how the wine would turn out. Um, and I would definitely say that this for this particular vintage, it was like challenging as far as winemaking, just kind of not knowing what to expect as far as smoke taint. And so, um, you know, we had taken grape samples in for analysis at a local laboratory to kind of see what the smoke taint markers look like. However, with Syrah, Syrah naturally produces those those chemicals just as part of its like flavor profiles, like guayacol, formical guayacol, which are indicators of smoke taint also are naturally found in Syrah. Um, and for us, we were just very concerned about any smoke taint issues. So we changed kind of how we made wine this year. So we uh, usually do some percentage of whole cluster, chose not to for this vintage because smoke can be in the, the stems. Um, we used um, enzymes and fermentation tannins that we usually wouldn't use just because we wanted to get really big extraction. My philosophy as far as like smoke tainted wine is you want to make the biggest most badass wine you can. So if there is any little bit of smoke taint, hopefully it just becomes part of the complexity of that wine. Um, and if the smoke taint is really terrible, then there's nothing you can do. So, um, and then we also used only um, 100% neutral barrels rather than any new toasted barrels. Um, so I feel like for this wine, for me, it really like, I don't really get smoke taint on it. I think part of that is just because of the vineyard location and getting lucky and then also not doing things as far as winemaking that could have increased the perception of smoke taint, like using stems or, th or things that would be bringing more um, potential uh, smoke issues into it. So I want to pat myself on the back for all that, even though maybe it's not really because of me. Um, so I feel like it turned out really well, given the stress of that year. Um, and it was a new vineyard for us. Fortunati Vineyard was, um, I think this was the first vintage that we had gotten fruit from them. It's located kind of like right in the middle of Oak Knoll, um, like uh, silty, loamy soil with very good drainage. It's a really great spot for Syrah. Um, and 
Yeah, and we've been getting it since. And um, I'd definitely say that this wine, the 2020, is very true to what we're seeing from the subsequent vintages. Awesome. Yeah, I to me, this is almost a very, um, like if somebody wants to set a bar for what California Syrah can be, because um, it has that smoky umami kind of flavor, not smoke tangy, but I would, I would still say, like, when I say smoky, I never, I don't mean it as a bad thing. If it was, huh. smoky, I wouldn't talk about it. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, it has that really nice, like, you know, like it just reminds, it makes me want to have a piece of steak, which a good Syrah like probably should <laughs> make you do. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, since 2020 kind of made you shift and I'm sure a lot of people have similar stories, but it sounds like you, you, you tweaked a lot of, even if just minor things in your winemaking to make sure that you had a, a good product for your customers. Um, have you carried on any of that? Like, you're like, oh man, this really works. Like I'm going to do it next time, even if there is no smoke. Um, I mean, one thing we did with this wine that was different was that, um, we fermented in tank. Um, usually we were fermenting in bins and I actually really prefer to ferment in tank in general, just because of like labor and being able to get a hotter fermentation. Um, and so we've decided to continue fermenting in tank rather than fermenting, um, in bins. Um, I mean, this year for the 2020, we inoculated with a known strain of yeast, but usually we do a native fermentation. So I just kind of wanted that fermentation security, that particular vintage. Um, so I can't say that that really like changed it a lot or not, but, um, but yeah, the fermenting in tank was kind of the one thing that stuck, but we still want to go you know, as far as like the style of Syrah that we're trying to make, we don't want necessarily to have to use a lot of additives like uh, enzymes, fermentation tannins, things like that, because we want the vineyard to kind of show what it is naturally. And, you know, we don't want something over-extracted. Syrah has a lot going on in there. There's a great tannin structure, um, but it, it's not something we want to, we want to be careful of over-extracting. So I, I don't want to like re rely on too many enzymes or things like that um, sure. and kind of go overboard. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So I think we got, we got lucky, um, and it's, uh, it turned out really well. Well, I'll ask you, cause I, I already said it made me want a piece of steak. So do you, is there something that you enjoy with this particular uh, expression of Sorrel that you made? Um, I think this, this vintage, especially cause it does have that kind of smoky character, but more like that umami bacon. That umami. Yeah. So it's like, it's what you expect from Syrah, you know, mm -hmm. Syrah's supposed to be a little bit smoky. So I think it definitely would pair well with like, with barbecue, ribs, um, things like that, for sure. Awesome. So just FYI, I have no dinner plans. So that's why I'm asking everybody. I'm like, oh, what should I, now that I have all of these open, like, what should I be eating? That, that's, that's my actual motivation. Um, cool. I'm going to go on to Katie then, because um, we've been tasting single varietals, but Katie has our first um, actual grown blend. So hello, Katie. Hi. I I think the last time I saw you, you were still pregnant. <laughs> probably, probably. Like I was pregnant forever, but um, yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about first where you got your grapes from? Um, sure. and tell us uh, kind of how you decide. I know there were some questions about percentages of blends, and this might be yeah. a good opportunity to talk about that as well. Sure. Um, so, hi everyone. I'm Katie Bunchu, and I'll start by saying this is the first year that um, we've been members of the Rhone Ranger. My family is um, familiar in the wine space with Gunlock Bunshu, but with GB, we focus on Bordeaux varietals and estate wines from um, our property. So I started Abbott's Passage 
as a way to get into Rhone varietals because that's what I personally like drinking. And so I have enjoyed being part of the Rhone Rangers because I'm learning so much from just everybody and participating in events. So thank you first and foremost for for having me because I love listening to what everyone has had to say so far. But um, so the wine that we're featuring is a 2019, I call it Quince Unknown. It's a Grenache Sharama Vedra blend. And it's actually the my first foray into a Rhone blend. It's from the Steelplow Vineyard, which is the most northern part of the Sonoma Valley AVA on the valley floor. It's right at the base of Sugarloaf Mountain. So it has a lot of rocky soil characteristics. And um, it's also, you know, it gets it gets warm, but it gets sunrise in the morning and it gets just a little bit enough of Carl the Fog, but not too much. It's always generally the last fruit that I bring in. We just picked it on Monday, um, which all of us are late, but like it, it's still always the last vineyard that I do pick because it just, it gets, it's cool up there. And so it doesn't really, takes a while to ripen. But um, it's also farmed by Phil Katuri, who is, could take up a whole panel and virtual event in his own right, just by who he is and what he does. But um, I've been working with Phil since 2014 with this vineyard. And, you know, with the one thing with working with Phil that you that you get used to is he, he generally calls the all the picks for you. So he can tell you when all of it, the, when everything's going to be ripe and you work with him to have him. Um, call the pick. And this GSM, I think William was talking about it earlier. This is probably generally the style of wines that I make at AP are a little bit more um, lighter and like fresh and bright. And while this wine is still that, it's still kind of weightier. And so when people come in to visit the winery that are looking for like a big wine, and oftentimes they're disappointed in some of the reds that I make, but I do have this wine that kind of speaks to them a little bit more and, you know, they, they tend to like it. So that is, um, the, the GSM. Awesome. And, um, I'm sorry, I can say for our audience what the percentages are. Cause I think there was a question. It's, it's 61 Grenache, 21 Syrah and, um, 18 Mavedra. And do you want to talk a little bit about like your blending process, um, how you trial that and what you're really looking for in a perfect GSM blend? Um, sure. It's It kind of goes back to Phil too. So Phil basically, helped, like he's kind of like, this is what we want to do. This is what we're doing. And, um, you know, some, we have particular rows within the steel plow vineyard that we've been working with now for since 2014. And generally speaking, those year over year have been the same rows that we're working with. And, you know, some years, depending upon, I know there was a question earlier about percentage of Mavedra. There's been a couple years in which I've gotten more Mavedra than Syrah. So it's been more of a Grenache Mavedra Syrah blend than a GSM. And it just, it's just kind of varies vintage to vintage to what the vineyard gives, gives me and gives us to work with. But I mean, always it's the selection is the Grenache is going to be the base of that blend. And then the Syrah Mavedra sometimes very dependent upon the vintage. Um, well, now I do want to open it up to um, folks that are listening and want to write in some Q&A. Um, um, I'm going to mention the ones that I've already seen, um, but anybody that's listening, please feel free to keep typing in the chats. Um, and the one that I wanted to touch on first, because a few of you have mentioned native 
ferments and anybody can start. Um, but the question was, is that more difficult in the cellar than inoculation? Um, <laughs> short answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> short answer, yes. Uh, so like you've just, you're least likely to get it dry and you got to run into problems. All of Klein's red wines at the winery are um, actually wild fermented. So the ancient vines Mavidra is naturally fermented. We... Um, we like to come ways around it. We have a couple of blocks we know always stick. So only like one or two of our wines, we will actually inoculate on the red side um, just because we know they're going to stick every time. Um, you've got a slower, you've got a longer leg phase, which helps develop more flavor and more intensity in the wine. So you've got more depth of characteristic. So it's not as pure fruited. You get a bit more delineation and more detail. Um, however, it's you can run into problems at the end. So you've got to make sure that your house yeast is and native ferments or natural ferments or non-inoculated ferments, whatever you want to call it. Generally, you've got fairly strong yeast in house and uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is pretty much going to be the thing that finishes it anyway. Um, is my opinion anyway, you know, um, unless you've got a super clean facility and it's never seen commercially. Yes. I mean, I, I was going to say that the, sorry, or Casey, if you want to go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that I think for us, the most difficult part with native ferments, which we do for a number of our, our, our wines, um, uh, reds, whites, um, especially for something that's being fermented in tanks. Um, I like to do, do some of them native, but sometimes during harvest, when you have many different things coming in, you want to turn your tanks over faster and native ferments don't let you do that. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with uh, which ones you do native, knowing that you might want that tank for a, a second round for something else. Um, but for us, we, um, I don't think we've had really issues with them sticking, but we do kind of let like to do a little bit, not extended maceration, but kind of like really sitting on the skins for just a little bit, um, getting close, pretty close to dryness before we drain and press. Um, I would be super scared to do a native ferment and then drain, you know, at, you know, five, five bricks or something. I mean, it's not a religious holy war. You, I mean, you could get 27 different answers. I mean, I, I've had native yeast rip through in five days. I just pressed a carignan that was 22 days on the skins. I mean, we did get our own facility that it had never had ambient yeast. And everybody in the counter whispered for an entire year that we would never ferment anything because we had no yeast, which is just ridiculous i mean keep in perspective we've been making wine for eight thousand years and seven thousand nine hundred we've not inoculated so you're not right or wrong if you are i mean i will say if you're making higher octane wines or even super super high acid wines that's why we have yeasts that are designed just like champagne yeast that are designed for high acid environments we have yeasts that are designed for high alcohol environments there's really no right or wrong answer to me it's just ridiculous how much noise there is in the space on this and how much people will shake their head at me and go, oh my God, your wines can't be drinkable. They must stick all the time. We've had two stuck fermentations across 14 years of 20 wines. So there's there's no right or wrong answer to this. And it should not be the religious holy war that it is. Boom. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I personally inoculate my whites and rosés just because in, in my experience, those stick if you do natives. But with the reds, I've never had a problem. Um, I'm also making wine in a facility that I run where I, you know, 90% of our production is Pinot. So I, I know that it's a native start, but it's RC212 that's actually taken it home. Um, and, and I really don't see any difference between my uninoculated lot and the lot of Pinot sitting next to it that's got, you know, four pounds per thousand of yeast added to it. They, they ferment just the same. Um, so I kind of echo William's thought there that, you know, the, the yeast is already there. Um, and it, you know, saves us a bunch of money because we're getting it for free from our neighbors. Um, I, 
want to ask just a quick follow-up question because I hear this from people that, you know, are trying to be quite clever and I just, I don't, I don't know if they are clever or not. Can you in the finished wine say, Oh, like if you're tasting this blind, cause you guys work with native and know it not like, can you say, hi, hey, this tastes like it's been fermented with native yeast. Is there a, some kind of aromatic or palate experience or anything? I mean, I know we're talking about Rome wines here, but I know a few years ago we um, put sent in our uh, Pinot Noir wines during mid fermentation for genetic analysis. So that we could see what the main uh, Saccharomyces strain was that was dominating those fermentations. And it was for multiple Pinot Noir fermentations and across the board, it was RP15, which is not even a strain that we usually use in our cellar. So it's just, you know, but you can buy it. So mm -hmm. it's just really interesting to see like, oh, that's what, what is fermenting our Syrah or our Pinot Noir, at least that particular vintage. I think it's easier to see in whites as well, just because the aromatic compounds being created in inoculated ferments versus wild ferments. You can actually nail down the flavor compounds you're trying to achieve in white wines. In red wines, it's a bit of, you know, like like you said, you've got the grapes in there. There's a million yeasts on them already and stuff like that. And yeah, it's it's a bit of marketing stuff and whatnot, but it is kind of Nice to be able to talk about. Um, I saw a question, and this was specifically for Casey. Do you stir during the aging process was the question. I do not. Um, in my experiments over the years with like Grenache Blanc, I used to stir, but I found it, it one, it was just a waste of time. Um, and two, it was messy. So no, but uh, for especially for reds, I see no, absolutely no reason to stir red. In fact, I'd rather have the lease settle and start to auto lease. Um but with Grenache Blanc, I, I ferment and then age in the concrete egg. So I, I guess in some ways it is being stirred, but I'm not physically, you know, stirring leaves up out of the bottom. And does that contribute to the kind of lighter color that you you get in your Grenaches as well? The fact that you're just letting everything settle down during the aging process? No, that's really from the whole cluster. You're just not getting quite as much juice to skin contact Um you know, I, I think that's that's pretty much it. Oh, I see one other question. Oh, here's a good one. Sorry, I didn't have the Q&A. Would you characterize NorCal Rhones as similar-ish to Northern Rhone in comparison to SoCal or Central California Rhones being more like the Southern Rhone wines? Or do you not think it makes a difference if you make a Rhone varietal in NorCal versus SoCal? I mean, we're way hotter than central coast in our summers and falls. So I would think we're actually closer to, to Southern Rhone and central coast would be closer to Northern Rhone. I, if, if there was a comparison, I don't think there is, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on where you're getting your sourcing your fruit from. I mean, Grenache Blanc is described by Jancis Robinson as, as flabby and lacking in acid. When you grow it in the Rush, West Russian river Valley or San Benito, it's, it's anything but that. So, I mean, so no, just Sonoma County is one example. One of the regions has, you know, insane amount of microclimates and you can have mm -hmm. a eight degree temperature shift driving 10 miles. So, it, you know, and that's the beauty of California is that we have, we have so many climates all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, I would ar argue that, that it's uh, you really can't compare California to the Rhone. I mean, people try to like, you know, Paso Robles has calcareous soils like in the Rhone. Um, but, you know, when you look at, I know Napa for sure, we are far more arid here than you are in even the Southern Rhone. So if you look at what that does to fruit during ripening, as far as having like water kind of get sucked out of the plant as you approach ripening, I think it makes it really hard to say like this place, 
is analogous to, you know, France, which is on the other side of the world with a different influences as far as soil, climate, um, you know, so I, I don't know. I think that's the beauty of wine is every spot is unique and that's terroir. Well, we are pretty much at the top of the hour and I don't see any other questions. So thank you guys for entertaining us and answering all our questions and providing these beautiful wines. Larry, I'll, I'll send it back out to you to close us out. Well, Stacey, thank you very much. And thank you all, your panelists. It was awesome. Uh, you guys all did a great job and uh, well done sidestepping some of the fun questions out there and making it apolitical. Um, so I did want to mention a couple of things coming up. Uh, we have the next Zoom is going to be in December. That's going to feature Paso Robles wines. And the date is, uh, is, is going to be announced shortly. Uh, in February, we have the Rhone Ranger Experience in Paso Robles, and that will feature about 70 wineries, many of which are on this panel. Um, uh, and that is taking place on Sunday, February 18th. Uh, Ray Isles, the executive wine director from Food and Wine, is going to be moderating the panel that Stacy has moderated in the past. Uh, there'll be a winemaker lunch, and then there'll be a grand tasting in the afternoon. So in that event, always sells out early. So if you are considering uh, doing it, you might want to check with the Rhone Rangers. It's actually up on the website now, so you can purchase tickets now. And then we are going to be coming back to Northern California, back to Klein at the end of June. We did a, an event there this last year that was a celebration of Fred Klein being uh, honored as a, a kind of a, a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Rhone Rangers. And they have graciously allowed us to host another event this year. So we'll be making that announcement. There'll be a Friday night dinner uh, beforehand. And then the main event will be on Saturday. I think that's, I think it's Friday and Saturday. So um, get onto the Rhone Rangers website and make sure that you are um, aware of all these things that are going on. And there'll be plenty of other announcements coming up shortly. But thank you all for joining us. And thank you again to the panelists. You guys did a great job. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Budd. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha.